welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. In this episode, you will hear a live recording of an event that I did in Portland, Oregon on September 1st, 2019 called The Power and Peril of Self-Education. I did this with Bill Duresowitz, who's the author of Excellent Sheep and a previous guest on this podcast. And it was facilitated by Dev Carey, another previous podcast guest and hosted at the Wayfinding Academy, the really cool, innovative, new two-year accredited college in Portland. And uh, we got an introduction that was very nice by Michelle Jones, the founder of Wayfinding Academy, that unfortunately was not recorded. And also all of the questions that came from the audience were not recorded. And so you'll, you'll hear them reframed by Dev, who moderated Bill and I talk about what self-education means, which is a fairly confusing phrase when you actually try to pin it down, how well K-12 and higher education institutions are doing uh, in terms of preparing young people to be self-educated, to develop their self-knowledge, and also the, the politics of, of widespread change in the education system. Dev also throws in some really funny and illuminating comments, including a great story about his next-door neighbor. Uh, so without further ado, I give you all three of us, but first it's Dev. Here you go. And today my role is to ask questions, and if it ever gets slow, come up with another question, take question. We'll, we'll begin by uh, just people up here talking. We'll do that for maybe an hour, and then when we run out of things to say, or they run out of things to say, we'll take questions from the audience for at least the last half hour. And I'm going to begin by introducing Blake, who I first met 10 years ago or so because he called me out of the blue and explained who he was. It turns out Blake is a master at he makes lists of things that he wants to do in his life and then goes out and does them. And one of the lists he makes is the people he wants to meet. And then he calls them and goes and meets them. And, and has this skill of meeting strangers and then learning from them. And anyway, he called me up and asked some questions and we got to know each other and ended up working together, um, leading a number of different programs. I was working for him. He leads a program called Unschool Adventures and has taken now, I don't know how many, lots of trips around the world. Lots of young adults have spent one, week, one month to three months traveling around in some other country. We've also done programs in the United States, writing retreats, a thing called the Adventure Semester. And Blake also writes books. A lot of them are up there. You can go look at them. Most of them are about alternatives to college. And I think when I... I think about how Blake stands out. It's his ability to be goofy with kids and connect with them while at the same time asking the hard questions and really looking at, okay, what's underneath all this stuff that's working and how do we get to the essence of it and figure out how to make it better? I'm going to turn it over to Blake. He's going to introduce Bill. We'll take it from there. Thanks, Dev. It's kind of awkward to hold this mic right here. Yeah. But we're going to do it anyways for everyone who cannot make it here physically today. Yeah, I wrote some books. One of them was about not going to college and still finding an education, creating an education for yourself. And that book was built upon the shoulders of many other books. And one of those 
was Bill's book. But that's not quite true because my book came out before your book, and so it was one of Bill's essays. Uh, he published two essays that really took off online. One of them was about solitude and leadership. The other one was about the, the limitations, the disadvantages of an elite education. If you haven't read either of those, you really need to go Google them immediately. And uh, one of those essays inspired me to uh, feature Bill in my book and say, here's someone you should really pay attention to if you want to think more about the overlap between higher education and self-education. And then after I published the book, I emailed Bill in the same way I reached out and just cold called Dev. And I said, hey, I, I really love your work, and I'd love to send you this, this thing I wrote which references your work. And Bill said, sure, send it my way. And I never really heard back from him. And then uh, when I picked up your book, Excellent Sheep, I was reading through this book, and I was loving it. I still love it. I still think this is pretty much the best book that you can get about higher education, and for me, the best book that uh, defends a liberal arts education. Um, and then about two-thirds of the way through the book, I ran in, into this funny line where he said, a book that recently passed over you know, my hand said that you, know, you can pretty much just go research some stuff, become a little bit smarter than other people, and become a public intellectual. And I was like, that sounds suspiciously like something I wrote. And I went back to, to check my own book, and I was like, Bill Derosiewicz is lambasting me in his book. You know, but it's kind of a, an honor to be lambasted by someone who you really respect. And so uh, I reached out, and we started talking, and I, we got to meet a number of times. And I had Bill on my podcast to talk about uh, his book. And I think one of the standout moments in that conversation for me was when we were talking about you know, the idea that you can not go to school and still become educated. And you said, I, Blake, I don't think I've ever met someone who I consider educated, who doesn't have a college degree. And I was like, whoa, whoa, yeah. But then you kind of backpedaled on it a little bit afterwards. But um, so that, I think, led to uh, this fascinating discrepancy in my mind. And I think that's fueled a lot of the conversations I've wanted to have with you since. Because your book is, in my mind, really a testament to the power of, of self-education, self-directed learning, and especially the chapter where you talk about uh, how a liberal, liberal arts education teaches you how to think, how not to just accept received wisdom. And that, in turn, leads you to build a self. Uh, you're not just a you know, carbon copy of your parents or your peers. And then finally, then, then you get to find a direction. And this is all stuff that I feel like we talk about in the alternative education space and that you are also talking about. But at the same time, you're very skeptical of, of autodidacts. And, and in the book, you say, like, some people might be able to do this autodidact thing, but uh, I actually have a, a wonderful part of, of that quote right here. You say, soul-making will never strictly be compatible with syllabi and semesters. Imagination and courage don't fit neatly within rules and requirements. You're essentially like an unschooling parent at this point. Uh, but if getting an inadequate education is bad, then getting none at all is even worse. You need to get a base before you can take off on your own. And I think that's, that's a valid point. I think that's a valid criticism uh, of us true believers of unschooling and self-directed learning. And it's very nuanced. And so that was, my, that was my inspiration for bringing us together for this talk. All right, I've, I've poked the beehive now. Would you like to no, no. tell me Do why, I need why to you talk said into yes? That or... No, you've got yeah, your okay, mic. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm sorry that I, I ambushed you like that. Um, <laughs> 
I think that was actually in uh, a blog post in my, in the, it doesn't matter. Okay. I think I've attacked you, I've sneak attacked you more than once. Uh, and I'm sorry about that. And then here you are accusing me of nuance, which is a rare, I usually don't get accused of. So that's nice to know that there was something nuanced. Um, but I want to, look, I'm, we, I, I really appreciate I, I, that you reached out to me those years ago. And every time, you know, when you're in Portland, you look me up and we go to Barista and we have a good conversation that I always learn from. And I appreciate that dialogue. And I think that, um, uh, you know, you've made me think much harder about what I think of, you know, about, about education, formal and, and, uh, and, and unformal, or informal, anti-formal, unschooling. Um, I want to stipulate that I know, other than those conversations, I know nothing about unschooling. Unschooling, homeschooling, alternative schooling. I don't know anything except what I've learned just by talking to you. And I also want to say, especially since there's some younger people here and parents of younger people, I'm guessing, that I really know, I have no direct experience of K through 12 education other than having gone through it myself. Very unhappily, I might add. Um, I was a college teacher for a bunch of years, and that's mainly what I know. Um, so you didn't actually put a question on the table, but go ahead. Yeah, would you tell us about your experience and where these arguments in the book came from, especially about building self-knowledge, finding your direction? Yeah, 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 good. Uh, so that essay, Disadvantage of Elite Education, I had a very traditional education. I uh, got a, uh, I went to college, and then I got a PhD in English Lit because I wanted to be a college professor, and then I was a college professor for 10 years. So I taught as a graduate student, too, for about five of those years, as graduate students will do. So I taught for about 15 years, and I taught at elite schools. I was a graduate student at Columbia. I was a professor at Yale. And um, I was also the kind of teacher who really liked to hear what was on his students' minds. In fact, more than liked to, like, I kind of forced them to talk to me. Um, I... Basically, I said, you have to come to me at least once during the semester. You have to come to office hours at least once. Um, and sometimes, and I would always, when they came, I would always, that first time, I'd always say, like, tell me about yourself. Actually, one thing I learned fairly quickly is that that was a question that would flummox them a lot, especially like the Yale kid, and he's a, they're a, fr they're a first year student. And I didn't realize, like, how much they're reading into that question that is not actually in that question when I just say, like, tell me about yourself. And all of a sudden, they switch into, like, interview mode. Or I would say to them, so, so how did you get here? Why are you here? And what I meant was, like, why did you choose to come here? And they're hearing, like, how did you get into this place? You don't seem like you belong here or whatever. I mean, none of that was there. So then I started to learn, to, like, so where are you from? And what do your parents do? Which is something I always like to know about people. And you have older siblings. Um, I, at the risk of digressing too much, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, that is a risk and I'm not going to take it. Um, uh, I want, the digression is that at some point, I, at one point I wanted to write an essay that said, that was called uh, The Millennials Tell Their Story. Because I started to notice, not in that context, but later on after I wrote this book and I would give a lot of talks at colleges and I would like have lunch with select groups of students and I would ask them to go around the table and tell, tell me about yourself. I would get uh, resumes. That's what I would get. The way they were telling me their story was like they were reciting their resume. Not where they're from, what their parents do, what they're interested in, what their siblings do. 
Uh, and of course, I mean, a lot of that was structured by the situation, but I also felt like it spoke more deeply to the way they had constructed a sense of self for themselves, which is to say from the outside as a set of credentials. Uh, and very different from the way that even for all the miseducation that I went through in the 70s and 80s, not the way I would have told my own story then. Anyway, I like to hear what my students have to say. A lot of times we'd have that initial conversation, then I wouldn't see them in office hours again, or they would come in only to talk about their papers, and that was fine. But I had given those who wanted to hear the message that I was willing to listen to them uh, talk, like, talk about themselves as something more than students. Like, I'm here to be a mentor if you need a mentor. And a lot of them took that opportunity, and a lot of them talked about feeling, especially as they got closer to graduation, uh, they didn't know what they were doing with their lives. They didn't know what they wanted to do, and it was clear that they didn't know how to go about figuring out what they wanted to do. Uh, that and often the same person uh, feeling that, feeling very alienated at Yale. The, and it was always like the smartest, most intellectually curious kids who felt like, Actually, contrary to what they assumed, this was not a place that was set up to encourage their intellectual curiosity. And, and actually, a lot of it kind of came from the peer, their peers more than anyone. Uh, it was, uh, they, they, felt, they felt marginalized, and they felt like they were made to feel like weirdos because they actually wanted to be in school to learn, as opposed to prepare for some kind of professional path, get the internships, get the interviews. Um, get the summer job. So that's where that essay came from, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education. If I thought anybody was going to read it, I would have given it a better title. Um, it happened to come out right when I... It coincided with my departure from academia, my involuntary departure from academia, that among other things had to do with the fact that I spent too much time listening to my students in office hours and not enough time, like doing research, which is what you're supposed to do. It's the only thing you're rewarded for. Uh, you're not rewarded for teaching, you're not rewarded for mentorship. So it happened to coincide with my departure from academia, and, and I thought, uh, I didn't think anybody would read it, and if I thought it, those few people I thought might read it would be fellow professors who would recognize my description of these students as people who were lost, people who felt alienated, um, people who didn't know how to find a sense of purpose. It was actually kind of angry and sour, surprisingly. Um, like, it kind of gave the sense that I didn't like my students, which wasn't true, but you could definitely get that sense, because I didn't think I was writing for students. And the internet, this was in 2008, and the internet found it, right? But, but it was actually students who found it, right? They started to, it became like this underground literature that was passed around among elite students at colleges. And the reason I knew that is because they started to write to me, like, immediately, like, a, within a week, they started to write to me. And I would get these long confessional emails, uh, which I still get, not at the same rate. Um, I didn't realize when I was writing, didn't even realize the whole time I was a professor, that actually there was this enormous hunger and dissatisfaction out there among students like this for exactly the reasons I was putting my finger on. Uh, they felt like they were, uh, school was giving them everything except what they needed school to give them. 
Um, and I should say that the one piece that I didn't know, even though I knew my students quite well relative to the other grown-ups in their lives, including sometimes their parents, was how miserable this was making them. Uh, how deeply unhappy that system is making students. Of course, now this is becoming fairly well known. Right? More and more stuff has been written about this. More and more books have been written about the incredible levels of stress and anxiety among not just high-achieving students, like really any college-bound student, I would say. Um, and that's, to make a long story <laughs> long, um, that's where the, I mean, so then the book took another six years to write because I was taking in all this information. I start to speak at colleges and I would hear from more of these students. Um, yeah, so where I ended up, at least at that moment, and I'm, I don't think I'm fundamentally different, although my mind is much more open to unschooling and alternative schooling than it was before I met you, is that um, school is screwed up, K through 12 is screwed up, college is screwed up, but I still deeply believe in what should be the mission of school. And I also think, and I guess this is what we're going to talk about, that, and granted I don't know anything about unschooling, that it's really pretty hard to get from school, to get without school the things that I want students to get from school. Granted that they're usually not getting it in school either. And I would say that's probably more true of co what I, I would say that what I think is hard to get outside of school, I think is even harder to get outside of college than K through 12, getting that outside of K through 12. All right. Well, let's just jump into the meat of it. Yeah. And let's start in with this question that is the title of the talk, which is what does it mean to be self to self-educate? And so I assume that that means creating somebody who is capable of answering these kind of questions that your students couldn't answer and the kind of person that you're trying to create outside of school arena, how do you do that? What does it mean to self-educate? I think this is a really hard question, and I came up with the title for this long before I even had an inkling of how to answer it. Um, but I have a few ideas about where we can start. And my question for you, Bill, is uh, if you met someone who seemed to be equally educated as the, the graduate of, a let's say, a quality uh, higher, higher education institution, and then you realized after the fact that they did not go to any such institution and they held no credential. Kind of the, the unschooler Turing test. I love that, by the way. Yeah. The Turing test, yes. Um, you think it would be appropriate to label this person self-educated? Let's just start there. Well, sure. And, and that concept, you know, the autodidact, right? That's an old term. Um, I would, I, I, like I said, I'm surprised that on the podcast I said, you know, I've never met an educated person who didn't go to college. I mean, granted, in the work, life I've lived, I haven't met a lot of people who haven't graduated from college, including you guys, by the way, right? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if, I mean, of course I would say that a person like that is self-educated. And I certainly think that people like that can and do exist. Um, 
what I want, no, I mean, go ahead. I mean, you, you didn't ask me a very open-ended question, so, so, which is fine, but I don't want to just go off on my own thing. Yeah, Dev and I were talking about this uh, ahead of time, and we realized that as we were trying to define self-education, we were getting muddied by the question of what is education in the first place. And, and is there really a, a meaningful distinction between education and self-education? Well, okay. I've been thinking about this since you, you know, you emailed me some of these questions. Um, so first of all, when you, when you propose that educational Turing test, how can you tell if someone went to college, right? How can you tell that the education they got that looks like a college education actually came from going to college? It immediately raises a question that I think is kind of the central question in higher education, which is what kind of education do we want kids to get, young people to get out of college? Because as far as I'm concerned, the way colleges are answering that question now, the way parents are answering the question, employers, politicians, is not the way that I would answer the question, right? I mean, what college, edu what society tends to want to get, what society wants people to get out of college is, all, is career readiness. That's what they want. And to me, not that that isn't important, I mean, you have to be able to make a living, but this is what, this is at the root of so much of what's screwed up about college now, is that we've turned it into uh, a, f a fancy form of trade school. So, you know, I mean, actually probably that's even harder to get without college because it's very, it tends to be very specialized. I mean, maybe you can, but you know what? I don't care one way or the other because to me, that's not what college should be for to, is for to begin with. The way, we, we can go back and forth on this. I have sort of a, a different set of, also a different sort of set of ideas about education versus self-education. But, but that to begin with is like, well, what do we mean by education? It's not an abstract question. Like, what, what do we want kids to get? What do we want young people to get? If you met someone who's able to have a, a wide-ranging conversation about many different ideas, who seem to be able to explain their path in life and have rationales and justifications for it, which were not just mimicking other people in their life. And if they could you know, take other people's perspective, uh, if they had empathy, if they are, are not just a product of their, their, their class, the, the particular place and time where they grew up, would that person be educated? Sure. I mean, that gets to more like what, what I think of as educa education as being, as someone, I was, so I was thinking about this and I was thinking that education uh, this is a definition that I just came up with, right? It's a way, it, it, it should enable you to orient yourself towards the world. Orient yourself towards other people, orient yourself towards the past. And not because the past is just like a nice thing to know about, but the past is how we got here, right? So how did the world get to look the way it does now? How to orient yourself towards knowledge, ideas, information, and most importantly, how to orient yourself towards yourself. Right? That, to me, is what education is about. It's, it's, it enables you to be at home, to be oriented towards all of those things. I think some of the things that I just said are hard to get without college. Some of those things are, not, are hard to get in college. They're not really what college is set up to give you. So I certainly don't think that college is the be-all and end-all. To me, the big, the big thing that, would, that I imagine being missing from an autodidact education, and I may be wrong about yes. this. I'm ready. <laughs> well, it's the pressure of other minds bearing on your mind. What I, one of the things I say in the book, I'm talking about the role of a professor, and again, granted, very few professors play this role. You want somebody in your life who, who's, who's there to tell you when you're wrong. 
right? And I think about, I was a very curious person. I was a very self-directed reader. That's why I went and studied English Lit in the first place. Um, having those professors who could tell me when I was wrong and tell me when I was right and tell me how to think about what I was saying in ways that I hadn't imagined, hadn't realized I could think about it, who could open up perspectives that I never would have found on my own, and fellow students who also can have this kind of dialogic, dialectic relationship with me. I could never have done, I could never have progressed in any way without all of that. I'm not saying people can't do that. But that to me is the big thing that a more formal education, that's the best thing it can give you. And I want to agree with you and offer two concessions. The first of which is that most of the unschoolers or non-traditional students that I know do end up going into some form of traditional higher education. It's the predominant path. Um, and I'd say it, it probably broadly mimics their socioeconomic background. And so if, I don't know, if they were going to public school and 80% of the other kids were going on to some form of higher education, as far as I can tell, that seems to be what's going on with the unschool, unschoolers also. Uh, the second concession is I completely agree. And that was my experience in college also. I was so frustrated by the, the stupidity, the, the slowness, the bureaucracy of high school, of my like fairly well-funded, very traditional public high school in Bakersfield, California. And going to college at Berkeley was this breath of fresh air, and the peers were a huge part of it. The few professors that really had conversations with me were a huge part of it. And so I completely agree also. And when someone asked me, if you didn't go to college, do you think you still would have had these same ideas or taken the same life path? The only honest answer is no. All right. I'm going to follow up to this conversation, which is, I know in school and in out, outside of school that you see people who really thrive, who are able to take the opportunity in the world, whatever they're exposed to, and find a way to incorporate it into their life and learn about it. And they've got this, the ability to create those kind of conversations that you're talking about, create mentorship in any conversation they enter into, to accumulate uh, information, but way more than information to self-reflect and so forth. My question is, how do you get those skills? And is there a better answer than you just happen to have parents who had those skills and therefore you did well in, in whatever arena you went into? But if, that, if that's not your story, is there another way to get those schools, skills in school or outside of school? And what success, what, what have you seen that works? Listen, I don't have all the answers. I, I, uh, there was a very, actually a very important experience. I think I mentioned this to you guys or just to you earlier today. A very important experience for me in my life, which was a, a Jewish youth movement that was kind of central to my experience in high school, especially in, to a lesser extent in college. So it was, it was a completely non-academic experience. It was a kind of commun sort of community building among, you know, I had, a, I had a former student who went to the mountain school, and when he described it, I'm like, oh, that sounds like community building among adolescents. Yeah, that's what it was. A lot of discussion, informal discussion, informal education, 
uh, actually doing things together, building community together, being idealistic together. Um, and to a certain extent, I had a, a sense of fraudulence as I was writing Excellent Sheep. That's a bit of an overstatement. But I realized I was talking about the value of a liberal arts education and finding a sense of purpose. And it made me think more and more about how that happened in my life. And it wasn't through school. It was through this thing. And, um, and it sounds like the kind of thing that you guys do with young people. Uh, and uh, I don't think that you get that in school. I don't think, again, that when I said that, that those sort of orientations that you need to develop, some of them you don't get in school. So in other words, I'm describing a non-academic experience that was crucial for me in getting those things. And I think about where would I have been if I hadn't had that? And I would be like the schmucks that I went to high school with or the schmucks that I met in college who like didn't know who they were, didn't know how to talk to people. If they were boys, they didn't know how to talk to girls as like human beings. Um, so yeah, there definitely needs to be something other than school. You're making me think of the, the really formative experiences between ages 11 and 19 for me, one of which was going to this wilderness summer camp where you got challenged every day to do really hardcore outdoor stuff. You had to choose everything that you did. Fundamentally, you could always opt out. Um, but it was very much about goal setting and, and achieving goals. And that mindset stuck with me. Uh, there's even this one weird thing that the, the camp did, which I think of as very strange and cultish today, but they, they said, you are not allowed to say the words, I can't. You, instead of saying, I can't, you are allowed to say one of three things at this camp. You can say, I can't backwards, which is Tanaki. So we all had to banish our Tanaki monsters by saying Tanaki instead of I can't. Um, or you could say, I choose not to, which is a way of kind of reinforcing that you always have a choice in what you're doing. Or ideally, you would say, I could if I and then come up with a solution or a second solution or a third solution. And so this sort of proactive mindset was very much instilled, almost drilled into me in this, by this camp. And I went back there for four summers. And of course, I was very lucky to be able to, to go to a summer camp for four summers. So that was a big thing. And I felt like that was, that was taught, that was instilled. That, that was a skill that helped me become a more proactive person in, in this case, that I was not getting from school and I was not necessarily getting from home life, not in the same way. Or if I, you know, to the extent my parents were trying to do that, I was just ignoring them. But I would listen to non-parental adults like that. Um, and then the second one was uh, when I went to college, uh, the UC system was impacted that year and they, they couldn't let me come in in the fall. They said, you can come in in the spring, but we can't guarantee you any housing. And so you have to find your own housing. And so I went searching and I found the, the student cooperative houses. And this is uh, where you get to live in a house for a lot cheaper than you would in the dorms, maybe half the price for room and board, but you have to work five hours of, a week for the house. And so I moved into this house called Casa Zimbabwe, which has 125 people, co-ed. Uh, my first job was being a, a cook for the Thursday night dinner crew, and I had to prepare meals for about 90 people who would show up for every Thursday dinner omnivore, vegetarian, and vegan. I never met a vegan in my life. Uh, there was also people spending their hours uh, doing dishes in the kitchen while we were cooking, and you would get double hours if you did dishes while you were naked. 
And so, like, this was nothing more than a total revolution for me. And, and in Excellent Sheep, you write about, you know, the late night bull sessions, which people kind of make fun of. And you say there's actually some real value to those. And, and that happened for me in a way that when I visited my friends in the dorms, it was not happening there. And so there are all these communities that existed for me outside of what mainstream education was offering that, by and large, were the ones that, that transformed me and developed me. And maybe that is a reason that I, I shy away from, from thinking that, that conventional schooling has much force when you can have smaller organizations that are much more nimble and can really innovate and, and do things for students that the mainstream educations can't. Well, what you're making me realize, well, uh, let me say something first. Uh, again, I, I think these, these are, the kinds of experiences we're talking about are necessarily non-academic experiences. And one of the big problems with with the way school is done now and the kinds of students that I wrote about, is that uh, school has now expanded to fill all the available space. So much credentialing is required, so many hoops to jump through, so many APs, that students simply are not having the experience, ha the kinds of experiences that build social and emotional competencies. This is what uh, the book How to Raise an Adult, which is a really good book. This is what she says, you know, students are getting to campus with more and more academic skills, fewer and fewer social and emotional skills. And those are not two separate things. They have fewer and fewer social-emotional skills because they're expected to have more and more academic skills. So they never learn how to like talk to other people because they're busy studying for their test or whatever it is. Um, so a big part of the problem with school is there's just too much school now. Too much school. Uh, what you made me realize is that what I'm really saying about what, what, what is school good and maybe even borderline necessary for is the development of the mind. The development of the intellect. Nobody gives, excuse me, there's young children here. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a hoot about, as far as I'm concerned, very, very few people are left in this society who really care about people developing their intellect or their mind. I mean, even the words sound weird, like, or pretentious, you know? Um, you know, I, I think about how, like, there's it's still that word scholar still exists in all kinds of the names of schools or the names of scholarships are like, but of course none of these people are actual scholars and nobody wants you to be an actual scholar. The actual scholars were those students of mine who would come to me at Yale and say, you know, I feel like a freak here because I actually want to learn things and I want to learn them for their own sake. So for the last few minutes, we've been talking about social emotional stuff that's really important. But then there's this other thing that I still think is important, but I'm not so sure that too many other people think is important. I'd love to draw one more voice into this conversation, and it's, it's Dev's next-door neighbor. Like, could you briefly tell us about him? All right. Um, I moved to the community that I moved to, which in Peonia, Colorado, and discovered that although I had a PhD, I went to a lot of school, too, that um, I was surrounded by people who knew how to do just about everything and I didn't know how to do any of those things and when I say just about everything I mean be friendly with a neighbor who disagrees with you politically uh, grow all your own food deliver your baby fix your car uh, treat somebody with a broken leg um, figure out how to listen to your kids when they don't they disagree with you, et cetera, et cetera. And, 
and I was surrounded by people. And one person in particular stood out who that Blake is prompting me uh, to talk about, a guy named Eric, who, who dropped out of school, who has since raised some kids, none of whom have gone to school, and who are these amazing people, and who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and came back and started questioning everything uh, after that experience. And and went on a quest to educate himself by doing things like, I'm going to figure out how to earn money without working for the man. And I'm going to figure out how to build my own house. And I'm going to figure out how to heat the water without paying the, elect the, the company. And I'm going to figure out, um, you know, I notice that I'm, kind of stuck in my personality. So I'm going to dress up like a clown and go to town and try all different ways of being. And I'm going to go to clown school for a week. And then after that, well, I'm, I'm going to teach, I'm going to get into dancing. And after that, I'm going to get into storytelling. And, and I'm going to help all the neighbors fix their things. And meanwhile, I'm going to, you know, just constant self-education and pushing the edge of what's possible while including his larger community in the conversation about what he's doing and why he's doing it. And in a way that's really charismatic and inspirational. And I got caught into, uh, brought in to help educate his kids by taking them on adventures. And so from my perception, here's a highly educated person who has not done it in school at all, um, but has a lot of skills that really matter. So the question, why, why did you ask me to tell the story? I was specifically thinking of the time when you and Eric were trying to move a very large concrete cistern from the back of your house. Like, how much did it weigh? Yeah, 4,000 pounds or more. And I saw his mind at work in, that, in those few hours. And... I just felt dwarfed by his level of education. And, and I felt truly ignorant in, in a way that didn't feel like he was looking down upon me, but like, I, I want to be like him. And I really, I still have no idea how to become uh, like him. And so you're talking about the life of, of the mind. And I'm wondering if you, you know, people like Eric, is there anyone that you can kind of summon as an example of someone who's, highly uh, kind of anti-establishment, anti-credential, um, or maybe not even anti, just opted out of that a long time ago, but still feels like they have an incredibly well-developed, a super sharp mind? Well, again, to be perfectly honest, I just don't meet a lot of people like Eric, you know, and that's part of the shortcoming. I mean, as you know, the way I started that essay, the Disadvantage Elite Education, was talking about uh, how I couldn't talk to the guy who would come to, you know, the plumber. I couldn't talk to the plumber. Like, suddenly realizing, like, wait a second, I supposedly know all these things, and I can't talk to the guy who's standing in my kitchen. Because, you know, there's this, I feel this impassable social barrier between us. It wasn't even about looking down on him. It was just like, I don't, I, it's so hard for me to even imagine his perspective that I can't, like, make small talk with him. What is it about a really solid liberal, liberal arts education that happens in a great university that, that would make 
someone more capable of having that conversation? Uh, well, no, nothing. I mean, I'd had, I'd had a very solid liberal arts education. I mean, you said that my book is a defense of the liberal arts, and that's true. But I certainly don't think that every problem I identified is addressable by having a liberal arts education. To me, the problem there is how narrow sociologically the experience of people, somebody who goes through an elite education is, because it's really drawing from one very specific type of person and creating one very specific type of person. And again, because school is everything, you never have the experiences where you might actually learn how to talk to someone who's different from you. Um, I never meant to imply that people like Eric either can't exist or aren't very educated. Um, the, the example that comes to mind of someone who's educated in my sense, who didn't go to school, is Fran Lebowitz, the writer, who said that she dropped out of high school because she wanted more time to read. And that's it. I mean, she dropped out of high school. That was the end of her formal education. So, I, again, I certainly think it's possible. I just think it's difficult. And quite frankly, and again, I, I was thinking of this before, you know, today in advance of our talk. Um, I think it's harder and harder than ever. Why? Um, I think the, okay, so the Times, uh, the, the, the New York Times today, the Sunday Review is the education, the back to school issue. And I think the headline is, um, how do you educate kids in a dumb world? Something like that. But that's basically the idea. It's like, how do you learn, if the task is to learn to gather and evaluate evidence, formulate and, uh, and articulate um, complex and sound arguments, and have interactions with people who can do those things as well, the mental climate in which we now live, because of social media, because of you know, fake news or everybody having their own set of facts, makes it harder and harder to go out into the world and be held accountable, right? You know, you have a friend, a friend who has a, you know, went to college, has an advanced degree, smart person. They tell you something. Where did you hear that? I don't know. It was in my Facebook feed. I read it online. What was the source? I don't know. What was the source? Uh, it was RT. RT, that's Russian state television. You do realize that, right? No, they don't realize that. So that's what I'm talking about, right? Like, I think it's harder than ever. And, you know, the world is going to put less and less pressure on you to think carefully, to gather evidence and evaluate it carefully, to know how to do those things. But if you could gather people around you, if you could somehow form a community of people who do hold your feet to the fire, who do force you to think really hard about the things coming out of your mouth, force you to check your sources and it could theoretically be possible. Yes, and you would have a school. That sounds like you would, you know, basically what you just described is a school. Now, it may not call itself a school, and it may not be as formal as a school. And if you can do that, great. Well, this brings us to one of the other questions that we talked about beforehand, which is a lot of what you define as education, and I, I agree with this, is just conversations. Yes. Yes, but. Yeah. Um, so could those conversations happen in a way that, that are driven by the learner? In a way where they are seeking out these conversations, uh, they're learning from, from people who have greater experience, different perspectives from them. 
but maybe this is circling back to your question, Dev, about like, is this a skill that can be learned or are you just kind of lucky and you're born with it? Well, the reason I said yes, but, and you, you referenced my reference to the late night bull session, which people make fun of, but I think is very important. But as you remember, what I say in that passage is that the late night bull session and the, the classroom and the dorm room are two halves of the same process, right? One, the bull session is, you know, you play with ideas, you sort of test out ideas. And the classroom, it's not just that the classroom gives you the information or the access to ideas that you then talk about at night, which, although that tends to be what happens, but it's the classroom where the conversation should be rigorous. It's rare that an informal conversation is rigorous at the level that a good classroom should be. Uh, to me, you know, I don't think lectures are a very good form of learning. They maybe have some place in education, but to me, every class should be a seminar. Another big problem with college is that usually that's not the case. And a seminar should be a conversation, but a rigorous conversation. And a lot of times seminars aren't rigorous either because the professor is just happy to get the students talking as if that's enough, or they don't know how to lead a rigor rigorous session because it takes a lot of time to learn how to do that. But that's the point, is that uh, I think it's rare to have a rigorous conversation. Uh, and if you do, it might be well be because you're talking to someone who learned how to do that by going to college at a place like Berkeley, right? So no, I don't think you, you're just born like that. I don't think anyone is just born like that. I think you learn how to do it. Right. We're getting to a place where um, we're going to move towards opening it up to questions from you. So start thinking about what they are. And I had one thought, which was on the topic of rigorous conversation is that I know that I didn't really have that until graduate school. And to me, graduate school, all of a sudden there were no rules, there was no number of credits I had to take. There were, it was just learn stuff and, and show what you learned. And I was sitting around having conversations with professors and other graduate students. And it was, to me, the, mo the closest to self-directed learning that I experienced in school. And it seems somewhat ironic to me that we're talking about these foundational skills and you don't get that unless you're one of the lucky few who make it all the way through to the end. And is there a way to bring that in way earlier? And what would that look like um, if it doesn't happen at the family dinner table already? And so you would, do you want to eat? any of that or should we turn it over to questions i can speak to it briefly if you want i mean i had i smiled because i had a similar experience i mean i really did not have a great i didn't first of all i didn't like school until i got to graduate school until i was 25 after a lot of school um there's no reason that that can't happen much earlier it just doesn't happen one of the reasons it doesn't happen is because it's very resource intensive right a small classroom with a teacher who is, who's being uh, paid to teach and not just do research, uh, takes a lot of money. And school districts don't want to pay for it. Colleges don't want to pay for it. Um, but there's no reason that it can't happen. All right. Let's open it up to questions. If you have one, raise your hand, and I'll point at you, and, and uh, I'll repeat the question, and then we'll go from there. 
So I saw three hands up. Let's take that one right there. Okay, just hold on a moment. I'm going to attempt to quickly repeat the question for the purpose of getting it on the future podcast. And the question is, tell me if I get it right, is it possible to create lifelong learning in a way that leads to rigorous conversation and building of the mind? And how would you do that? I just want to say, because you gave me a chance to clarify, I don't mean when I say nobody cares, I don't mean individual people in the world. I meant, the, uh, first of all, I was talking specifically about college-age people and what the world wants them to care, what the world cares about in terms of them, like how many people actually care that a college student is really developing their mind. Um, we're talking about this, about how it seems like maybe even in, when people, it's when people retire sometimes that they really want, they finally have time, they finally have a chance. Certainly when you get older, a lot of people will say, one of my little arguments for getting, like majoring in something you care about is like, you have no idea how many people get to their 40s or 50s and say, oh, I wish I had majored in X, I wish I had majored in Y instead of what I was supposed to major in. In terms of how you do it, I mean, this is a more practical question that I don't have a good answer to. I know more people return to actual college classrooms. And now that there's online, there are online courses, of course, I think by definition, an online course cannot give you this because it's not a dialogic. I also don't have a great specific answer for this, but this reminds me of something that John Taylor Gatto wrote, which is that there's two groups of people in society today that are broadly segregated away from everyone else, and that's children and old people. And he said, what if we put these two groups together and let them interact or learn from each other somehow? And I think that there's, uh, there's something there. I haven't quite put my finger on it yet, but essentially we, we don't really know what to do with young people nowadays because... So much of school is kind of a glorified childcare service, and we're keeping them off the streets. And then there are many more people who are growing older and staying healthy longer and longer. And uh, we're trying to like get them away from our working adult lives also, so they don't interfere with us. And it's like there's there's some sort of confluence to be found here. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it looks like. Just to build upon that, John Taylor Gatto uh, suggestion. I, at one point in my life, I was uh, the director principal of a, a startup program within public schools that attempted to use mentors from the community and everyone put together their diploma without ever going to school. And it was very successful. And one of the things we did was we created uh, the opportunity for people from the community to be mentors. And in, in a small community, we soon had several hundred people enthusiastically volunteering to work with young people and who wanted to have those conversations. And uh, then we got successful and the state noticed and that all got shut down because those people are not highly qualified teachers in the conventional sense. Um, so let's take the next question. All right, so... The, the question from the audience is, what is what do you see as the future of education to further the things we've been talking about? Do you see it as people moving forward individually, finding their, their best ways to learn, or as improving public education? Anybody want to take that first? 
I, I don't have an answer, but you, you put your finger on something very important, which is that the things that we're talking about imply a certain level of resources. Uh, again, it's not impossible to come from a highly impoverished background, impoverished in every sense, and, but it's going to be much, much more difficult. So, I mean, I, I've said this before, that I know you maybe don't use the term homeschool, but I'll just put it that way, that a homeschool is a very well-resourced school, right? I mean, if it's like one parent teaching one kid or two or three kids, that's a very well-resourced school and obviously is something that's available to people who have a certain level of resources. And, and, and that, to me, is why any, any solution at scale that's going to ha- be equitable at all has to be a public solution. And one of the big things that's happened to, higher, to education, K-12 through and higher education, over the last 40 or 50 years, is that people, dis- after a, long, a few generations where we had a sense of civic purpose and common destiny, and we decided that everybody does better and everybody does better, and we're going we're gonna to be generous in our provision of public goods like education, 40 or 50 years ago, we decided, you know, actually, I think we're not going to do that. And it's going to be every family taking care of themselves. And, and we reduce the tax burden. And, you know, we have a, I mean, Oregon is a great example, right? The schools are really under-resourced. We don't have a sales tax. Uh, the University of Oregon gets 5% of its budget from the public. I mean, it's, in states where it's bad, it's like 15%. In Oregon, it's 5%. So until we're willing to recommit ourselves to that and to the idea that we should help other people's kids get an education, uh, yeah, most people are going to be left out. Uh, And then, of course, we have to instill the idea that actually what we mean by an education is not just, you know, teaching someone to occupy a very narrow, you know, uh, vocational niche, not just train our future, you know, petroleum engineers or whatever or wind power engineers, but actually produce broadly educated people, that's a whole nother lift. I feel torn on this one, and it makes me think of John Taylor Gatto again, who was a big proponent of the mission of public education, and then he also, he shone this glaring light on its track record. He said, "For in, in inflation-adjusted dollars, we've been spending more as each decade goes by. Uh, teacher-to-student ratios have gotten better. All these kind of common stories about uh, everything is, is as bad as could ever be right now in public education. Um, there's some truth to it, but there's also a lot of non-truth to it. And so at some point, the people who are on the far other side of the spectrum saying, like, break up the, the monopoly, I have sympathy for them too. And seeing this drastic, completely unfunded you know, growth spurt of homeschooling since the 1990s. Um, that is very inspirational. Seeing all these tiny little alternative schools that can pop up pretty much anywhere by usually bootstrapped uh, former school teachers who are saying, I would never put my kid through this, so I'm going to start this alternative program. I find that very inspiring. And yeah, if you just take a snapshot right now, you say homeschooling, unschooling, wild alternative schools, which kind of have to be private by their nature. This is really just for fairly privileged families, and you're correct when you say that. But when we look at it in terms of a number of decades, uh, since the 90s, since the 80s, it's a really good trend. And if we look another 20 or 30 years down the line, I don't know what the blend between public and private 
can be or should be. And I think it might change. Just the advent of like virtual reality or augmented reality in, in education might like completely turn us all upside down. And so it's a very hard thing to answer, but I, I feel very strongly as Gatto did that the track record of, of publicly funded, at least K through 12 education, I think the track record for higher education is better. Um, K through 12 should not warrant much more uh, extensive funding and experimentation um, until we can figure out like a, a way to really shake it up. Well, that may be true, but I mean, you're still going to leave out, I mean, however big unschooling has become, what is it, 1%, 2% of all kids? I think there's about 3 million homeschoolers. Uh, and homeschoolers is a wide net that could encompass unschoolers, which might be 10 or 20% of the total number. Okay, maybe, but but then you can even throw in, I would even be happy to throw in all of private education. It's like 5% of K through 12, I think. A private education? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe 8%, but whatever, whatever it is. So maybe we're talking about 15% altogether. And, and undoubtedly skews, we know that pub, private, private school skews affluent, right? So, so I, don't, I honestly don't see any scenario under which the other 85% or whatever the percentage is, is going to be able to do any of this stuff simply because it takes resources. And the whole point of, public, of any form of public good is that the resources are mobilized on a broad basis with progressive taxation, uh, so that everybody can be involved. Now, what you do with that money is a completely separate question. And the fact, I mean, I said this right from the outset, public education is deeply screwed up. I also think private education is, for the most part, deeply screwed up. And we need to do it differently, no question. But that uh, the resources need to be mobilized in a public way and therefore inevitably going to be spent in a public way, I don't really see an alternative to that that doesn't just leave out most kids. Something you wrote about in your book, which I found myself agreeing with and still agree with, is this idea of, of pooling uh, money on the state level instead of the, the local kind of property taxation level. And, and that seems like a fairly simple and straightforward first step. Yeah, that we fund, that we fund public schools in this country district by district. I mean, it's, it is, it's not even accidentally. It is deliberately a way of reproducing the class system. And as far as I know, we're the only industrial country that does that. Uh, not just on that we should pull it state by state, but nationally. Yeah, but that's still public school. That just is going to equalize funding among public schools. I mean, the public schools in wealthy communities are generally pretty good. I would agree with that. Good. <laughs> I just finished teaching in uh, public school this last winter. I taught in public school a couple of times. And... Um, you're not all here to get my opinion. I'm going to throw it out there really quick anyway. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think there are a couple of big changes you can make to public education, and I think public education is the way. And I think there are a um, few things we're doing that just make it way harder than necessary. What are the changes? Um, well, it's a long list, and I'm not going to talk too well, loud. But, but, but for one... Uh, for example, I, I, I don't think that federal involvement in setting the policies of public education is useful. It's a big obstacle to the kind of conversations that we're talking about. Let's take another question. Okay, so the question that I hear is that we acknowledge there are some large problems with accessibility to higher education, specifically the cost. And 
who are the leaders who are out there affecting change and taking a leadership role in addressing these issues? I saw someone in the New York Times a month or two ago. I think her name was Michelle Jones, and she runs something called Wayfinding Academy. And I, I consider Michelle one of the leaders in actually producing something that's vastly different from the mainstream with the goal of leaving students with zero debt. But, I, I, well, I mean, most of the Democratic presidential candidates, and not only they, have been addressing the issue of student debt, which is, a, again, fundamentally an issue of public funding. As of the early 70s, three quarters of this budgets of state universities were paid through taxation, paid by the public, three quarters, and now it's one quarter. And this is, simply has to do with funding priorities. Uh, we're choosing to spend our societal resources on other things, mainly on tax cuts for the rich. And so people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, you hear them talking about it. Uh, there, there are actually some problems even with their proposals, and then of course the biggest problem is whether it's actually going to happen. But uh, it's good to remind ourselves that we used to have, in the University of California, it was free. It was free until, uh, well, Reagan got a hold of it and had a backdoor tuition as early as the early 70s. But I think formal tuition didn't start in the UC system until the 80s. With a lot fewer students attending. Well, that may be the case. Um, uh, and not to get too in the weeds, as people say now, but there's a principle in economics called Baumol's cost disease that says that in sectors that can't be automated, costs are going to rise faster than inflation. Healthcare and education, basically, you know, you can make a widget, you can make a thousand widgets with the labor power that used to take one, uh, uh, you know, one person can do what a thousand people used to be able to do, but uh, a surgeon can only operate on one person at a time, and a teacher can only teach X number of students at a time, and relative cost is going to rise faster than inflation, and there's... Well, there are a few things you can do about that. You can make the classes bigger. You can try to automate through computer class, class you know, online classes, which I think generally stink. Certainly aren't, don't replace real classes. Um, you can make families pay more of the money, which is what we're doing. Um, and you referenced the presidential candidates who are essentially pitching college for all as, as a solution. And... Uh, I've recently spent some time in Germany, which a lot of people hold up as like a place where anyone can go to college for free. And you know, really, you pay a few hundred euros per semester in fee. So it's essentially free by American standards. And, but also, I've learned you know, how rigorously they screen their K-12 through students. There are three tracks, and this system is replicated in other parts of Europe. And it's only those in the highest track who have to pass this like triple SAT called the Abitur, that uh, those are the ones who are then allowed to go into universities. And so it's free for everyone who can get through this crazy gate. And that's something I've realized we don't really talk about here in our discussion about free college for all. And that's something that I think would really turn off a lot of people who have this idea that, that uh, we don't want to be screening out young people so early. Understood. Two other things about Germany that you would know better than I, but I'm under the impression that, first of all, their high schools are a heck of a lot better than ours. So you graduate from high school or whatever your secondary school is, much better prepared. And second of all, if I'm not mistaken, they have a much better system of trade school education. Second one for sure. And I think we need to do both of those things, right? And the part of the problem is, yeah, young people face an impossible choice. You could either go to college 
and accumulate a lot of debt, or you cannot go to college and shut yourself out from many, most of the well-paying jobs in society, right? Actually, if you look at the numbers, as expensive as college is, it's still a good investment because your earnings are going to be literally twice as high on average than if you didn't graduate from college. So you have this impossible choice. We need to change that choice by making it possible to get a well-paying job without having a college degree. And there are there are job there are plenty of jobs like that. And one of them is in the trades, which we've been de-emphasizing, de-emphasizing, stigmatizing. I meet various people who are trying to revive that as a as a much more present possibility for young people. I'm really into that. All right. Yeah. Can you attempt to to summarize your question in in one sentence? What what I hear is at what cost do we continue to hold on to this idea of higher education as being a good thing when we know that it leads to an awful lot of frustration and waste of time, waste of money, and that there are other ways to progress. Look, again, I, as, as, as we were just saying, I think the expectation, at least in certain socioeconomic strata, that you will go to college and you will go to college immediately after high school is really dumb and really wasteful for exactly the reasons you said. And another thing, another norm that would be nice to change, and it would actually involve practical change as well, is that you, you yes, maybe you do go to college and get a liberal arts education, but not immediately after high school, not only not just a gap year, but maybe five years later. And there are all kinds of, again, social and practical reasons that that's hard. But what I would say, and of course everybody's experience is different, is that uh, the examples you gave of people having wasted their time in college, from what I heard, had to do with vocation, right? Like, why did I study X when I ended up doing Y? And my feeling is that the, the best reasons to go to college or to get an education in general aren't vocational at all, uh, that we, we've done too much equating education with vocation. And another thing that you said, and maybe you didn't mean this, but, but you said it and a lot of people say it, is why do we need school at all when information is freely available everywhere? Uh, education is not information transfer. Um, in fact, you're wasting time in a classroom. This is one of the reasons I don't think lectures are a good form of education if you are just doing information transfer. Yeah, that you can do yourself. The question is, I would say precisely because information is freely available everywhere now, the question is whether you know what to do with it or, as we say, to think. And again, that can certainly be achieved without school, but I think, I think, I think can school, school, when it's done right, generally can teach you to do it much better. Not always, than not. I agree with everything you said, and it's, it's the fact that school doesn't feel like it's done right for so many young people that it pushed me into this alternative side of education. So you said, what if we had the, the idea that you don't have to go straight into college? And there's many obstacles to that. But that's something that a lot of uh, unschooling families talk about. Why does my kid have to learn to read at age five? Why do I automatically become an adult when I'm age 18? Uh, et cetera. These, these arbitrary numbers, benchmarks we've chosen. So we agree there. Um, we've been talking about gap years and how these programs can accomplish a lot that we consider education without looking like formal school. Uh, my friend Ken Danford, who started a program in Western Massachusetts, which is an alternative to school called North Star, so it helps teens leave middle school and high school and essentially do whatever they want. It's kind of like facilitated unschooling. 
And uh, he wrote this article uh, that got no press years ago, and I thought was brilliant. And it's titled Eighth Grade Out. And he said, gap years are becoming more and more normal in our culture. No one looks at you in a very crazy way if you say, I'm going to take a gap year after high school or even one after I finish uh, undergraduate. He said, what if we tried to make the idea of taking eighth grade as a gap year a more normal concept? Because there is this kind of division between the elementary school years and the high school years. And, and you do have to get a bit more serious and rigorous in the high school years. But a lot of kids are just burnt out after the time seventh grade rolls around. He said that would be a great moment to go off and do something like an AmeriCorps-type service program. That would be a good time to move away at least temporarily and do something away from your family. That's what Maria Montessori said. You know, the, the kids who are learning in elementary school years are so much different from those learning in the middle school years. Uh, she said, go off and go like live and work on a farm and like where you have to grow your own food and like put the fences up, which is essentially what devs programs uh, ask young people to do. Uh, she said, go like have kids like work in a bed and breakfast uh, and serve actual people. And you know, because child labor is morally distasteful uh, to us uh, for many good reasons, you know, a lot of us kind of clench up a little bit when we hear these suggestions. But if it was just a gap year, in the same way that gap years are very palatable now for after high school or after college, if there was an eighth grade gap year, um, I think that could contribute to what you're looking for in terms of even if we're not going to revolutionize the system, at least let kids take a break from from the rigmarole for one year. And then they might make, you know, if they did that in eighth grade, maybe they would think a little bit smarter about uh, this idea of putting $25,000 a year on, on your credit card, so to speak, uh, starting at age 18. So I'm hearing a, a, there's a conflict between preparing people for a career in job readiness and preparing people to think. And, and how do you balance those two? Um, and I know, I know that a lot of employers share that same concern. I know I've, I personally have read and talked to many people who more in, have acknowledged that people coming out of school don't necessarily have the skills that they want their employees to have. There's a huge value in recognizing people who have those skills and who are going to be successful because the costs of hiring and training and so forth are so high. So a lot of businesses are internalizing all of that and saying, let's get, let's get people who can think and then we'll train them ourselves. Forget school um, as, as one trajectory that I think is happening in the world. And I'm going to be quiet and see if either of you have an answer or thought about it. Something I like to say is nobody wants a self-educated surgeon to work on them or a loved one. Right? So when you're asking about technical fields and how that overlaps with self-education, that's where my head goes. And in the same way, somebody who wants to become a research scientist, you pretty much need to go to a university and immerse yourself in the community of fellow scientists. And that's where all the money is. That's where all the people are. Uh, it's, I think it's a very hard time nowadays to be a rogue scientist have access to the tools that you need. And so I don't see my job working with young people as to convince them that, that self-directed learning means you, you always blaze your own path. Um, I think it means fully consenting to, to a path. And sometimes that path means you know, four years of undergrad in physics, six years of PhD studies, 
in physics. It's a lot of submission, really, in the end. Uh, but they're doing it for the right reasons, and they're not uh, coming out the other side and saying, oh my god, I, I really just want to do childcare um, with, with my PhD, which is a form of, of wasted resources, especially if those are public resources. And so I don't see a real conflict between the two, but it, this is why I like to focus more on the K-12 through side of things, because if you can get to them then, then uh, all the potential wasted time and opportunity costs um, in higher education can largely be circumvented. That's my hope. Yeah, and, and I think where we, one of the places where we obviously overlap is the feeling that uh, it's all about getting young people to the point where they know what they want, are doing it for the right reasons, can choose their own path, whether it's formal education, non-formal education. But I love what you said about how you studied X, and did I understand you right? It's not really what you're doing, but I, I think the number I saw is that 70% of people uh, with college degrees are working in fields that are unrelated to their major. And that number is usually brought forth as, as an argument against college or against certain kinds of majors. And to me, it's the exact opposite. Like, that's exact, actually, that's exactly the point. Unless you're, probably, unless you're doing something really specifically technical, electrical engineering, whatever, it's not about majoring in something that's the name of a job. It's about learning those, what are sometimes derided or not derided as soft skills that enable you to do any kind of job. Some people like to say that a liberal arts degree is an everything degree because it equips you to do everything. I didn't have a very long uh, work life before I went back on my PhD, but the few jobs that I had, I like it took me two weeks or maybe two seconds to learn the actual things that I needed to learn. But being the person who could do that, that doesn't take two weeks, right? And those are the kinds of people that businesses want to hire, the person that you can teach those things to in two weeks or two seconds. And that's about not the specific thing that you major in. And it may not even be about having gone to college at all, but it's about learning all the stuff that we've been talking about, learning how to think in a broader sense, learning how to self-educate. I can't resist telling a, what to me is a funny story. You talked about you don't want your surgeons be self-educated. This friend Eric, who I already told you about, has a lot of manual dexterity. He's a professional welder. And he told me that he met somebody on the street who watched him weld and said, oh my goodness, if I could have had you in med school, I could have turned you into the best surgeon ever because I get all these people who go through med school for all these other reasons, but it turns out they have no manual dexterity and they're lousy surgeons. And I don't know how to make them into good surgeons, but you have it. And I heard this story from Eric and I had this large cyst on my head and I didn't want to go to the medical center. And I had him remove it and he did an amazing job. We figured the risk for infection was way lower out in the open Colorado air than it was in the medical center. And he really was pretty amazing. There's not even a scar. <laughs> you want to end your podcast like that? Okay, let's take another question. But what I heard was a statement saying, we need large-scale change coming from a place of, of some maybe federal government recognizing that there 
it's a different purpose to education than than creating people who can do work. Uh, I, I actually I wanted to respond in a couple of ways. Look, I mean, there are, there are leaders in higher education. They're not necessarily leading it in the direction that I want them to lead it. I mean, if you really want to know, one of the, one of the people who's cited very frequently is the president, I don't actually remember his name, but he's the president of Arizona State, which is considered the most innovative university. And, and, it, and, and he's actually, very, among other things, or, oriented towards serving a much more diverse student population. He comes from the Ivy League. He's like, most kids are not like this. So he's doing a whole certain set of things. And there are other people who are doing various things but if we're talking about these kinds of concerns, a couple, so human capital, you remind me of a great book that was written by a 28-year-old called Kids These Days, subtitle, uh, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. I re- Malcolm Harris is his name. So it's not just kids who go to Head Start. The whole way through, it's how do you build your human capital? And the other thing is that, you know, there are people, maybe people like me, maybe people like these guys, Michelle, who are trying to affect change but we're only a few people and nobody actually cares that much about what we think at a policy level. And I'm thinking there are 20 million people who go to college right now at all, at all levels, right? Community college, people in their 30s, whatever. There are 20 million people enrolled in college. And then there are God knows how many millions of parents. There's an enormous constituency. One of the things that I find so frustrating about Oregon's situation is that we have these uh, taxpayers who don't want a sales tax because they don't want to sp- spend money, pay money for other people to go to the University of Oregon. And then those same people, many of them are also parents who get, maybe when their kid is old enough to go to college, they say, why is the University of Oregon so expensive? Or why is the University of Oregon not as good as it could be? Well, you need to put the two halves of your brain together and realize that you, whether, you know, it's not just people in college or the parents of people just in college, who should care about college? And then you're talking about a lot of people who might provide that kind of political muscle that you're talking about and that we really need to change the, you know, the direction of the ship. Let's wrap it up with that. We have, I, I think both of you are going to stay around for a while, so there's an opportunity for individual questions. There's all kinds of snacks over here put together by Michelle. Chance to mix and mingle. And thank you very much.